Hello, and welcome to Climate Fix Podcast. Here we dive into evidence-based solutions to climate change and various other pressing environmental issues. This podcast is created by Americans for Nuclear Energy, a pro-nuclear environmental organization. We take no money from industry or special interest groups. All donations are from individuals like you, interested in a grassroots scientific movement to solve the world's most pressing scientific problem, global climate change. We hope you approach these ideas with humanism and an open mind. Our mission statement is as follows. Nuclear energy is safe, cheap, plentiful, clean, and efficient. It has the capability to stop and reverse climate change while addressing the ever-growing demand for electricity globally. We strive to educate American citizens about this technology and to dispel misconceptions with facts. We firmly believe that both human civilization and industrialism can easily coexist with a healthy environment. Join us in helping to plan a prescription for a feverish planet, or as we like to say, a climate fix. This is your host, Phil Ord. And this is your co-host, Colby Kirk. In this episode, we have a conversation with Ryan Pickering, who spent a lot of time and effort in helping save Diablo Canyon nuclear plant from shutting down in California. This was a huge victory for the pro-nuclear cause, given the amount of anti-nuclear sentiment in this state. He tells the story of his incredible journey in helping to achieve such a success. Additionally, we talk about his shift from working in solar to getting into the nuclear game, the politics of nuclear power and environmentalism, friends and foes encountered in saving the plant, environmental justice implications, and using the momentum of this victory to go further. Ryan Pickering is an energy policy researcher based in Berkeley, California. He studied political science at Loyola Marymount University and energy policy at Stanford University. He spent the first 12 years of his career working with SunPower Corporation to build more than 7,300 rooftop solar systems across the United States. In 2021, Ryan became involved with efforts to save nuclear power plants from early closure around the world, speaking publicly in Belgium, Germany, Michigan, and California. He has volunteered with Mothers for Nuclear, Stand Up for Nuclear, Save Clean Energy, Generation Atomic, and Climate Coalition. He helped organize the Save Diablo rally in San Luis Obispo on December 4, 2021. He was at the state capitol on August 31st when the California legislature voted to extend operations at Diablo Canyon Power Plant. Today, Ryan is researching new business models for nuclear energy with a particular interest in energy markets, consent-based siting, project finance, and energy policy reform. He is known for using a battery-powered projector to illuminate pro-nuclear messages on buildings and trees across California. Awesome. I am looking forward to learning more about Ryan's shift in attention away from solar power and towards nuclear power. This is very interesting to see, as many people working in solar claim their technology is the future and that nuclear power is obsolete. Is this a sign that people are starting to see the hard physical limits of solar electricity generation? I'm eager to hear his perspective on this. I recall being told by so many, including those working in energy policy, that Diablo Canyon was dead and not coming back. They were sure the decision was final and that nothing could be done. Yet this was not the case, as Diablo Canyon was saved by many dedicated people like Ryan, who fought to save it. I'm looking forward to hearing the exciting story behind this victory. Ryan's help in securing a future for Diablo Canyon is a huge win for climate change. The sheer amount of carbon-free power those two reactors produce is staggering, providing almost 10% of California's electric generation. 
Yet leaders in the state were looking to shut it down with no clean energy alternative. Even though many might not see it this way, Ryan has risen to the occasion and stood up for clean energy, even if it was unpopular. That's true climate activism. Let's jump right in. Here's our conversation with Ryan Pickering. Ryan, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Phil. It's an honor. Thanks, Ryan. What led you to take a break from working in the solar industry to become a nuclear power advocate? Well, a lot of folks have asked me that, especially my former solar colleagues. Uh, The business is good right now. We've really struck a vein of gold, um, but I decided it was time to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. You know, renewables tend to get very focused on single projects and, you know, whatever environmental benefits they can construe out of them. But I don't think a lot of folks in the clean energy movement are really taking a step back and looking at the whole picture and what it takes to decarbonize and keep energy affordable through this energy efficiency transition. And I just had to start working on it. That's cool. Um, You don't have to bash solar or anything too much, but is there any limits that you kind of started to see by chance? Well, yes. You know, it took me 12 years working in solar to realize it, but the sun sets every day. Yep. Right. Every single day. And while that sounds elementary, what folks don't understand is that energy storage is non-existent almost and and it has some real scaling problems and you know over the past decade working in solar we were constantly told that energy storage was going to come and save us energy storage is coming to save us we've got tons of investment in new technology We have all these great stories to talk about, but once we really started implementing chemical storage to these systems, this complexity skyrocketed, the cost skyrocketed, and the the consumers didn't see a lot of benefit to it either. And so with the introduction of chemical storage, you know, implemented and going to into the market and seeing real results, it became clear that renewables are almost destabilizing the grid and the energy storage that we're trying to implement isn't even close to to keeping up. And so ultimately natural gas is is filling the gaps. And and that was a real wake-up call to me once I realized that. Definitely sobering for you probably. The scale is tremendous um, in terms of how much energy we use in California, in the United States, and in the world. And, you know, I don't want to hate humans for that. You know, I, you love to see us using energy because we do all kinds of amazing things with it. But we do need to be honest with ourselves about the magnitude of the challenge and the promise of nuclear energy and what a big stick it wields is 
again, irresistible to me as, as a business person, as a researcher, and just as a, as a human. Yeah. Um, grid, grid data was definitely what, um, <laughs> grid data was definitely what led me towards nuclear, uh, when I was looking at solar and just seeing, you know, you say solar is a daily cycle. The sun sets every day and, you know, well, in a lot of places, sometimes the sun, it's not even sunny during the day. And there's also the seasonal aspects that, uh, even if we had a solution for storage on a daily cycle, um, there's the whole seasonal aspect, which expands that on another order of magnitude and more. Um, and, and I think you're right with like, when it comes to nuclear, just eliminating the complexity and costs and limitations of storage, uh, just with going with nuclear is, is really what brought me around to nuclear too. That grid level data is so incredible. And I'm so grateful for programs like electricity maps and, you know, for, for all of your listeners, if you, you know, I'm, um, next time you're in the app, I encourage you to click on California and toggle down to that 20, that hourly, uh, data toggle at the bottom of the screen and, and show the 24 hour, um, generation cycle in California and, you'll see almost a, a breathing organism where the solar blasts on um, to an enormous extent during the day and the natural gas goes down. And then at night, the natural gas snaps back up. And it's, it's you know, living in California my whole life and seeing the almost 2 million solar power systems we've built here, uh, it's a little bit frustrating to see just how reliant we have allowed ourselves to become on natural gas. And it's, it's not something that's, uh, it's a conversation that's starting to occur. Um, but it's not even polite to really talk about it because in California, we prefer to see our solar panels and pretend that they power our lives. <laughs> you could say it's kind of a, it's kind of a political identity and that leads us to the, our next question. And, we have a lot of people from various particular political leanings that come on the show, but where would you say you kind of stand? Yeah, I grew up in a conservative household um, in that like my parents are from small town Pennsylvania and were involved in the church. And so that was my upbringing. And then I went to college um, and Obama was running for president and that was incredibly exciting to be a part of as a young person, because I felt like he was speaking to me. Um, and like I did, have, I did dabble in some, some Ron Paul and I felt, you know, he was speaking to me as well. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very impressionable. I'm, I value the input and of my colleagues and the leaders around me. And, you know, Obama really took me over to the traditional left, and I enjoyed learning about that. I studied political science in undergrad, so he was, you know, all the case study you could ask for. And then over time, as the climate crisis um, became a thing, I suppose, I remember when we, when leaders were saying, don't call it climate change, call it climate crisis. And, you know, I really got into my, my doomerism phase and, and I started experimenting with, 
um, eco anarchy and, you know, reading the monkey wrench gang and thinking that we should just kind of tear it all down. Um, which I think that concept is really in vogue right now with the just stop oil, uh, campaigns. Um, and then I kind of moved into socialism when I moved to the Bay area, I grew up in the Bay area I lived in Los Angeles for 13 years, building solar down there. Then I moved back to the Bay and, you know, socialism is very popular in the Bay area. It's in vogue, especially for young people. There's an organization called the DSA democratic socialists of America, right. which I joined, uh, their San Francisco chapter. And, um, you know, really did a lot of organizing with them around the Sunrise Movement and Green New Deal organizing. And um, then I had this big nuclear energy revelation just two years ago. And uh, I, I've taken more of a moderate approach since then. Once I really learned uh, about the hegemony of oil and gas, and I met a lot of people who worked in oil and gas that weren't villains. And, you know, now I'm just, I'm kind of at that stage where I'm just listening and reading and trying to be empathetic with folks. Um, but I will say that I think the left has an incredible opportunity uh, with nuclear energy, and I, I hope they see that soon. Yeah, well, we're always going to ask you, do you think the left has failed in environmentalism by kind of taking on the anti-nuclear sentiment. And do you think, do you see it changing anytime soon? Gosh, the history of the anti-nuclear movement is fascinating. And I feel like I'm a part of it being here in Berkeley, California, where we have right. a nuclear free law <laughs> passed by our city <laughs> council. And, you know, the anti-nuclear movement really started in Northern California when activists shut down Bodega Head nuclear power plant and tried to shut down Diablo, you know, 50 years ago. And so the history is complex and I don't pretend to totally understand it, but I will say that young lefties have a blind spot on energy and if the left wants to be taken seriously in DC and in state houses and even locally, we do need to sharpen our toolkit on energy and we got to stop with this magical thinking because, um, it discredits us and it's not aligned with working class people, you know, keeping energy clean and affordable is, is an imperative for the left. And we are wading into hypocrisy right now with our energy policy and assuming that, you know, this is going to be good for working class people when really we're seeing this inflation that's tied to the rise in the cost of energy. So I have seen some good signs, but I think the left needs to do a lot more when it comes to energy realism. Um, and, and we're hearing good signs that AOC's camp is looking into incorporating nuclear energy into the green new deal. And I think that's exactly the kind of thing that, uh, the left could do to, to regain some of the narrative on energy. Yeah, that would be great. That it does sound like an amazing news. The, uh, <laughs> 
Um, and, and if you look at case studies where you know there are nuclear plants being sh- that that have been shut down over the last few decades, um, you see the consequences of that uh, in local communities where you know it just destroys local economies. It hurts working class people. It uh, hurts education funding in in those areas and counties. Um, you, it really does ring a bell where like if everything the left is supposed to support uh, ends up getting uh, detracted from the shutdown of nuclear plants. Um, so would you say like, do you, do you think that uh, these values sort of helped you get motivated to get involved with the campaign to save Diablo Canyon? Absolutely. I, you know, my, my political identity is, is, is tied to working class people at this point. And we, you know, working class people have complicated, busy lives. And I really started getting upset about something called time of use billing in California. (laughs) And that's where from four to nine power prices are astronomical. We're talking in the mid 40 cent range in San Diego. It goes up to 49 cents a kilowatt hour from four to 9 PM every weekday. And that is a problem. And it's a problem that was created by this embrace of wind and solar without nuclear. And we see billboards around town saying flex your power from four to nine and you know, and then we're being threatened with power outages, of course, and we're getting text messages on our phone to reduce our usage. And at the end of the day, rich people are going to use their energy because they can afford it. So it's it's working class people and poor people that have to flex their power, even though they use less power. And like this is it's just classist. And and it really started to bother me. And as I was working in solar the time of use rates kept getting worse and worse. And I felt like I was contributing to the issue. And so I, you know, that was one of the many cracks in the foundation of my 100% renewable energy fantasy. And that's why two years ago I, I had to step away. So how, how did you get involved with uh, the safety Diablo campaign? Well, I read the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, that's my local paper over here in Berkeley as well. Actually, to be honest, it's my landlady's newspaper and I wake up <laughs> earlier than her and I read her newspaper and then I put the rubber band back on it and I put it on her doorstep. <laughs> and um, it's a great deal. Um, yeah. And in the paper two years ago, they were talking about shutting down Diablo and they were talking about its power output. And I was like, wow, that's, that's all rooftop solar combined <laughs> is one nuclear power plant. And I just never really gripped the scale of that. That just, that just, you know, one or well, two units versus 2 million. And one is dispatchable power that we can rely on. And the other is variable renewable energy. I just, it was, I was sitting right here at this desk. I was at work, um, you know, like reading the paper, answering emails. And I just, I, I knew it was over and I knew that my, I needed to get involved with Diablo. And so I started looking around and seeing who else was involved 
and I found um, a pretty ragtag crew, <laughs> and I'm so thankful that I did. And you know, the pro nuclear movement has been so gracious to me. A little skeptical early on because I was this like solar solar dude coming in, um, but folks like Paris from Stand Up for Nuclear. Isabel Bamaki from Save Clean Energy, Mark Nelson from Radiant, uh, the folks at Generation Atomic, um, the folks at Climate Coalition, they were all like, yeah, no, there's room on this bus, you know, and like, tell us your story. And here's what we're, we're thinking about Diablo. And we all just started meeting on a weekly basis on a Save Diablo Zoom call. And we started coming up with some crazy ideas to get headlines and I guess the rest is history. Nice. Well, do you want to give us maybe a rundown on some of the actions you uh, worked on with these people to uh, assist in saving the power plant? Sure. Um, we were meeting on a weekly basis. There was a lot of ideas being thrown around. I, I was threatening to, handcuff myself to the gates of Diablo Canyon, um, in protest. And nice. I, was, I was, um, politely shouted down <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, uh, we're, we're so lucky that we have so many brilliant young people working in this space who said, um, you know, we've got to take both an activism approach and an advocacy approach. We can't just make a bunch of noise without really giving a solution or an alternative or a pathway forward. And, you know, I think that's what a lot of these like oil, anti-oil activists could, could learn from, from the pro-nuclear movement is like, we came correct seeking audiences with people in power who could actually make a difference. And, you know, one group I didn't mention who's really the the spiritual leader of our group is mothers for nuclear out of San Luis Obispo. Yeah, they're and great. Mothers for nuclear is Heather Hoff and Kristen Zates. And they both work at Diablo Canyon for PG and E and they brought the, they brought the clarity and method and kind of righteous fury to make this happen, you know, because to hear from someone who works at PG&E saying like, I'm not going to respect this muzzle and I'm going to stand up for what I believe in. It felt edgy and they, you know, just naturally took on the leadership of, of our groups and they weren't. And what's so cool about this movement is it's a lot of different groups all kind of doing their thing in cooperation, not competition. And, so things really started rolling and we all agreed to meet up in San Luis Obispo and my friend lives there and he's got a boat. And I said, we should all take a boat ride out to Diablo and like see it for ourselves. So me, Mark Nelson, Paris, Isabel, um, and my friend, like hop on this boat and we go out into the discharge water of Diablo way closer than you're supposed to go. You're supposed to stay a mile away from the plant. And we were just right out front and it was this 
misty morning. You could barely see the power plant. It was so ominous. And then these sharks started circling our boat. And it's these famous tiger sharks who like the warm water that live by it. And they're the northernmost family of tiger sharks in the Pacific Ocean. And we were just, it was like the whole experience was pretty, it was intense. Um, also, the water was really rocky that day. So we were all kind of seasick. And we, um, we, we went back, regrouped, and um, decided, you know, that this is something that we all kind of wanted to embark on together. We went out to dinner that night in downtown San Luis Obispo. Carolyn Porco from NASA joined us and, uh, she was like, yeah, you kids got to do this. Like you guys got to make some bang some pans. And she's like psyching us all up. And could you, uh, give us a rundown on the, uh, uh, rally you guys held? Sure. So the idea was we need to throw a rally and we need to do it at the courthouse where, which is famous because that's where all the big Diablo decisions have occurred. And so we decided to do it on December 4th. Um, and in pre preparation, Heather Hoff, Isabel Bemicki, and I stood outside the single entrance to Diablo in the week leading up to it, handing out flyers to every single employee or anyone who ran through that gate. And people were very surprised to see us. You know, the nuclear industry is kind of famous for not being advocates. You know, yeah. they, <laughs> right. they have a very conservative nature to them, which is fine. You know, that's why we trust them with, you know, hard things like running the largest power plant in California. So anyways, we're out there every night saying, hey, there's a rally come through on the weekend, you know, uh, and everyone was like, okay, maybe we'll see you there. And, uh, Isabel got this big blimp that represented like a ton of carbon or, and she was kind of relating that to how much carbon is at stake. And, you know, the day of the rally, we show up and a, a, diverse group from the community came out and we did it right on the courthouse steps and it was we had some incredible speakers um all women actually all women speakers and we got just enough press you know the local newspaper was there vice news was there and a couple others and it was enough to ring the bell and we also coordinated that with the launch of this academic paper from Stanford and MIT talking about the value of Diablo Canyon. And so we kind of at, at the rally, we released this report that said like, look, Diablo is the most valuable building in California and turning it off doesn't make any sense at all. And, and Isabel's team really came through and, and wrote a report to stand by that and had got it signed by 80 really famous people like Ernie Moniz and Stephen Chu. So it really, it, it had just enough gravitas and press and people to grab national news. And we knew it was saved 
by that day onward. We didn't know how it was going to happen, but we, it, it just felt right. And we had the support of the community, um, right around then a, a poll in on the local newspaper came out and it was like 94% of, of San Luis Obispo residents supported the extension of the plant. And so we knew that even though thousands of people didn't come out, we knew that we had the support, um, like the community consent to really continue to make some noise. And that's what we've done over the past year. And, um, there were many other steps along the way, but that rally on December 4th in San Luis Obispo was, was really a highlight. That's how it's done. That's, that's amazing. Now it, in the process of doing all of this, um, did you encounter any like powerful forces at play or any opposition that seemed to sort of see what you were doing and, and jump on to, to try to stop you from doing what you're doing? From the get-go, the usual suspects were on to us. Um, you know, in the press that we got from that rally, of course, they the journalists sought out a group for, called Mothers for Peace. And Mothers for Peace is a 50-year-old anti-nuclear group based in San Luis Obispo, or one of the most an famous anti-nuclear groups in the world. Mm -hmm. And from the get-go, they were challenging us and saying that we were misguided and that, you know, insinuating that we were funded by big nuclear, whatever that is. Yeah. And, um, that, so that was to be expected. We kind of knew they didn't like us. And then it, it was a, a little bit less expected to see the NRDC really come, really put up some, some resistance and publishing a lot and just trying to discredit us. Um, and you know, that was really led by Ralph Kavanaugh, who's a famous attorney at the NRDC, who his biggest accomplishment was getting an agreement to shut the plant down in 2016 and again in 2018. So this is kind of his legacy at stake. Yeah. That's his resume. <laughs> but it hurt when people, when people write disparaging things about your character, you know, like it does hurt, especially in a vacuum. But thankfully, we've got this group call and we all kind of are, are like in it together and it just served to psych us up more. And it, it sharpened our own arguments because we were able to say, like, well, what what is Ralph Kavanaugh saying? He's saying that nuclear doesn't have value on the grid. Like, what what does that mean? And thankfully, you know, in our group, we have. PG members of uh, utility companies in California who are pro-nuclear who are saying like, well, here's what he's insinuating, but here's the actual data. And so we had folks on the inside who were like feeding us incredibly deep utility perspectives that we could advocate. And it just supercharged our critique. And, you know, as everyone knows, when you're trying to sell an idea, the worst thing you can do is talk poorly about your competitor because then it, it it builds empathy for the other side. And so in, instead of us like saying, oh, mothers for peace, they're, you know, a bunch of quacks or whatever, we just let them trash us and we just kept sticking to grid data and 
trying to tell the truth and educating the public and being empathetic with folks and calling into many meetings. Um, you know, that I think that was the other success of our community is every week we were calling into this hearing at, in Sacramento and that hearing at the California Energy Commission and this hearing at the CPUC. And we, we just kept making public comments like, hey, this is our biggest, we need more clean energy, not less. And keeping it really simple, you know, some folks really geeking out on the calls and some folks keeping it really simple and, and then folks talking about social justice and, you know, it's amazing what a dozen people can do if they keep showing up to the right places and, you know, credit to stand up for nuclear and save clean energy. They told us what was important and generation atomic. They told us what was important today. Like, Hey, if you're pissed off, dial into this call and make a really polite recommendation because smart people and influential people will be on that call. And it's just a, by, by being pro-nuclear publicly, we were giving cover to our elected officials. And I think that's so important with nuclear ad advocacy is just showing up and, and creating space for people to also uh, be pro-nuclear. Because currently there's so much anti-nuclear stuff out there. It feels too daunting as an elected or, or as a civil servant to be pro-nuclear, but as soon as folks start calling in and saying like, hey, let's think about this and sounding rational, um, that I really believe that our little movement created the space necessary for elected officials to take the courage to, to make the legislative step that they did. Yeah, like you allowed uh, Governor Gavin Newsom to be for it and have some credibility to keeping the plant open because other smart people were promoting that, that worldview and it gave him the ability to, you know, actually change his mind on some nuclear stuff. Yeah. And he's, you know, comes from a famous anti-nuclear lineage and we thought that we knew we could change his mind because you know, insiders at PG&E were telling us, hey, like, we actually don't have enough power. That's what became clear. And, you know, of all the things, I wish it was the clean energy or the innovation that changed California's mind. But there was a report done and we were short 1800 megawatts or whatever. Um, and it was like, well, we got a two point two gigawatt thing right here, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and yep. so that things moved pretty quickly, but credit to the governor, he moved first and, or him and Diane Feinstein of all people yeah. really were like, Hey, um, reality check. Uh, this is important. And, you know, I really respect when elected officials are able to pivot and I don't get, you know, sometimes you know, I get jaded and everything and everything's politics. But at the end of the day, like people are people and people do want to do right by folks. And obviously like power outages are political suicide. So we can understand right. why um, the governor was motivated to do that. But we learned later that he had other motivations that we can talk about. Um, and he gets my respect for that as well, specifically when it comes to um, local tribal groups. And I just wanted to bring up one more point. Um, you talked about kind of letting organizations like Mothers for Peace kind of continue to do what they were doing. 
just sticking to your guns with the facts because I saw that Vice News uh, video clip where that lady said blackouts are not that big of a deal. And I think because of that, that really helped people be like, yeah, that lady's a nutcase sometimes. Phil, that was really a, a turning point. Um, that, that Vice article got a lot of play because it had a video associated with it. And while it wasn't totally like, I didn't like the slant they took on nuclear. They just kind of took like the skeptical and scary slant as usual. But the leader of mothers for peace did advocate for daily power outages. And that really, when we've called in and testified later, we heard people calling in saying, hey, I saw this lady say that power outages were okay. And I want to let them know that power outages are not okay in my household, <laughs> you know? Right. And so it really like engaged the, the, just the local public and it got it out of this just like, you know, nuclear discussion and it became this, you know, California discussion. And like you said, you kind of just let your adversaries speak their piece and you know sometimes they get caught slipping and especially when they're not on the side of physics and the anti-nuclears became increasingly unhinged as we were testifying because this was over many months we were testifying right and they started saying all kinds of crazy things you know and they started questioning vaccines and they started bringing up <laughs> you know, really wild stuff because wow. they were kind of floundering. And as it became clear and as more people endorsed the extension of plant, they, they were yelling on the phone and, or, and in person, they were going sometimes in person. And this all served to discredit them and build empathy for our cause. That's amazing. For other reasons to keep the plant open, um, what, from an environmental justice standpoint, do you feel was at stake if Diablo Canyon was not saved? Well, one of the members of our movement, his name is Guido Nunez Mujica, and he lives in San Francisco, um, recently became uh, an American citizen. He's from Venezuela, and he immediately connected Diablo to social justice immediately that you know as soon as he started he joined the group he was like you know promotoras uh, or like like uh, latina women like they don't have time for time abuse metering <laughs> you know like right. this, is, this is not on their radar and it's just like a, it's just a a regressive tax on working class people and when he was calling in, we all kind of got good at our testimonies. You know, we are all speaking this kind of like broad coalition. And he just came in and he's like, look, I'm an immigrant. I'm an American citizen. I love this country and I love this state. And I'll be damned if I see energy prices go up and the quality of air in my communities go down. Like that's not happening. And he came with just the thunder, you know, and uh, that really influenced our whole movement. And so we started incorporating that social justice aspect, um, you know, with, with under his leadership. And Isabel really took that up. And, and so did Paris. And, 
you know, Paris speaks really well to, to this issue as well. So it, it was just immediately clear to our group that when you raise the cost of energy, you raise the cost of everything. And California is famously unaffordable already. And it's, you know, yeah. the pandemic has only exacerbated that. And, you know, and then we, you start looking at where all of our natural gas plants are. And we're building nine new natural gas plants in California. And of course, they're all in disadvantaged communities. Mm-hmm. And we, we just, we really shone a light on that without being vindictive, but just saying like, look, like, is this our dream? Is this the plan? And I think it resonated uh, with a lot of folks. That's amazing. Yeah, it's a good angle to take to to build a progressive support behind it. So, yeah, there's so many so many reasons to keep plants open. And uh, going back to you know just looking historically, every time there's a nuclear plant that gets shut down, the local community is destroyed. It hurts working class people. It hurts uh, locals. It hurts. It hurts a lot of um, disadvantaged and vulnerable. Uh, people in in our communities and there's a lot of advantage to actually protecting plants and and not whether it's the clean air uh element or the energy cost element it is uh just benefits all around it seems so um there is absolutely many social justice angles that we can take to keeping plants open um so like we're (laughs) now i'm like more curious to to hear about this where uh where you found unexpected support for keeping uh the plant open yeah so we you know we were kind of preparing for this rally and isabel and her organization save clean energy is out there chasing all these famous scientists and getting all these signatures and we're also calling our local representatives and you know a, a local a uh, city council member spoke at the rally as well. Her name is Dawn Ortiz Leg, and she was really brilliant. And, you know, to something that I thought of was, you know, I grew up in California and grew up learning about um, the colonial history um, of California is something called the mission system. And the Spanish kind of colonized California and plopped down all these missions. And, that was romanticized 20 years ago. And today it's, you know, it's critiqued more honestly in that, you know, these missions brought disease and then the missions ultimately, um, forced assimilation of indigenous groups, um, and kind of took, and in documented cases took children away from their indigenous parents and raise them on the mission. And, you know, between smallpox and other diseases affecting 80% of the indigenous population in California in like one generation and this kind of, this, um, this forced assimilation, it, you know, the, the landscape of California changed very quickly. And, that's true in San Luis Obispo as well. And San Luis Obispo has a famous mission, downtown San Luis Obispo. It's still standing. And I got curious about the indigenous history and I looked it up online. There was a few tribes that had claimed the region 
And it became it became clear that one tribe had a very strong claim to the land and well documented, and they're called Yaktichu Tichu Yaktilhini, or known locally as YTT tribe. YTT Yaktichu Tichu Yaktilhini. And in their language that means the people of the full moon. And their website is incredible. I'm like watching these YouTube videos that, well, their Dropbox videos they host on their website. If you go to yttnorthernshumash.org, they're part of the greater Shumash nation, but they have their own language and history. And they're telling this story about how they're resilient and they're still here, even though they, the mission was built right next to their capital and their land was stolen from them. And they were never given any restitution, nor do they have any state or federal recognition. And yet here they are, and they're part of the community. And it shows the people, and like the people look very diverse as well. And I said, I got to get in touch with these people. <laughs> and so I fired up old LinkedIn, which is my favorite platform, and I found one of the tribal leaders and in the lead up to the rally last year, I said, Hey, uh, we're talking about saving the plant and we would love to get your opinion on it. And, um, your, your, your insight. And I said something, I was, I tried to be really respectful. I, I just said like, we don't even really know what we're wading into here. And there's like a lot of history that we don't know, but we, we would be so interested to learn from you. And I immediately got a reply from them and they said, let's have coffee. And so Heather Hoff, Isabel Bamaki, myself, and Scott Lathrop from the tribe met at a coffee shop in downtown San Luis Obispo the day before the rally. And Scott told us some, some incredible history of his people and how their land was stolen and how their consent was not granted when they built the plant. And, but he also told us another side of the story in that uh, four members of the tribe helped build the reactor and were on the concrete pouring team. Wow. And how many folks of the tribe have worked at the power plant and how members of the tribe work at the power plant today as operators and how many people in the tribe love the plant and see that it brings a lot of value to the region. I mean, it's like the second largest employer in the region and it provides $20 million in tax revenue a year. So this thing is, you know, mm. it's valuable to the community and the tribe is part of the community. The tribe has no land or reservation. They live in town. You know, they all went to the local, I shouldn't say they all went, many of them went to the local university, Cal Poly. They have tons of pride in the region and you know they're pragmatists live in today's world and we i mean isabel basically said okay no matter what happens like we're with you <laughs> no matter what happens to the plant we're we're with you and heather and i were like yeah agreed <laughs> you know like what are we gonna say and they said you know we want our land back we want twelve thousand acres back and we we're like oh that's a sounds like a lot, you know? And they said, and we won't settle for anything less. That's, it's our land. And he told us that their capital was in downtown San Luis Obispo and they had five fishing villages on the coast. And one of their, uh, one of their fishing villages called, um, Chanu is at the site of Diablo Canyon today. 
I mean, it's literally, they, they dug up bones and baskets and stuff when they were building the plant. And Scott tells us that his grandparents were born at Chiiwi, which is the, one of the fishing villages just south. And I'm like, your grandparents were born at an indigenous village? Like, you're li- this is like living history. This isn't abstract. This is, this is lit today. And so the, we invited the tribe to come to the rally, and they, uh, a, a small group from the tribe did attend the rally. And we, they, were, they told us that they didn't want us to speak publicly for them and that they would speak for themselves. Um, but we've maintained very close uh, alliance with them over the past year. And in fact, they've given us a lot of strategy that ended up working, including their appeal to the Governor Newsom. And I, they, that's what really tipped the scales is the tribe calling Governor Newsom and saying, hey, this is our land and we support the continuation of Diablo Canyon power plant, but we need to get some input here. We need to be at the table and credit to Gavin Newsom. He re- his office replied the next day when they received the letter and, you know, the tribe has met with the governor's office many times and the legislation to save Diablo, which passed two months ago, has um, a lot of language for YTT to reclaim their homeland. That's so cool. That's amazing. <laughs> It almost brings a, a tear to my eye that that even, you know, a group of people that have been uh, treated terribly by this country are and have been victims of things like pollution are on the side of a, keeping a nuclear power plant running. Yeah, I think I think that I know that Diablo will change world history and you know, just given the prominence of the plan. But what I think, what I hope the lasting legacy is beyond like the crazy kids who showed up to save it is that indigenous people saw an opportunity here and in their own agency rose and knocked on the door of power and got their themselves a seat at the table. Right. And that indigenous people around the world can do this with nuclear energy. And in fact, it's it that I just believe that's going to happen. And to hear the tribe talk about it, and they've presented publicly, they presented at the ANS conference in Anaheim, and mm-hmm. they've also presented at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And to hear them talk about nuclear energy is to hear how nuclear energy is congruent with indigenous spirituality and that, you know, there are many different spiritualities in, you know, on Turtle Island, as they call, uh, as, as some indigenous groups call North America, but they all kind of center around like a respect for water, land and sky. And, you know, to hear the tribe talk about it, they said that nuclear energy has the least impact on all of these things that we must respect and protect. And how wind and solar, 
though it's sound that's part of the narrative, it actually doesn't have the same respect for for water, earth, and sky. And of course, extractive energy sources as well. And you know, the tribe is actively trying to speak with Deb Holland, the Secretary of Interior, an indigenous woman. Right. And they hope to share with her their perspective about um, nuclear energy, because at least in the United States, uh, nuclear energy is not viewed very positively by indigenous groups. There was a terrible tragedy um, in the Colorado Plateau about uranium mining in the 1950s. And Mm. I believe it's the biggest nuclear related uh, tragedy in human history, other than the bombs in Japan, in that, you know, oh, I believe over 700 Navajo men died because they didn't, weren't given proper uh, respiratory equipment or safety equipment when they were mining uranium. And, uh, you know, they, uh, many of them passed away rapidly and the federal government paid two and a half billion dollars in reparations in 2002, but they didn't fix these open uranium mines. So there's still freaking uranium blowing all around. And, and there's just, it's still not tied up and completely. And, you know, credit to Isabel Bemeke. She, you know, did a post about this history and she said like, it's not good enough. We, we, we need to remediate these sites. And from the tribe standpoint, you know, obviously they're well aware of, you know, that tragedy, but they said like that happened 70 years ago. And are we going to let that one incident make up our minds on this technology that can really give us autonomy? And, you know, the tribe's perspective is that tribes should start building nuclear power plants and nuclear infrastructure on their land as soon as possible. And even, you know, skirt around state and federal laws, given that, you know, especially if you're a federally recognized tribe, you are, you know, you are a sovereign equal to the United States and the NRC still applies. But, you know, is this an opportunity uh, for indigenous people and, uh, we haven't heard the end of that story, but it's incredible to see the leadership coming out of YTT tribe. And, you know, the world doesn't quite know this story yet, but I think they will. And I'm, I'm, I'm so honored to, to share it on this podcast. It's great to hear. And um, besides this um, amazing support from the indigenous tribe, uh, what are some other people you admire most in this movement to save Diablo Canyon? Oh, you know, I got to come back to Mothers for Nuclear. Their leadership has been so steady. And we didn't, no one even pretended to know what was going on. And I think a lot of people really checked their egos at the door and just said, hey, we're all coming together and trying to figure this out together. And I just... Sure, Mothers for Nuclear were leaders, but there were many leaders. And I guess the support or the the thing I'm most blown away by is the Congress of all of us coming together and making it happen. And 
in a, in a way with no top down power structures, there was no bosses, there was no money exchanged. It was just people showing up because they wanted to. And because we had built a subculture around it, it started becoming all of our identities as we wanted to save Diablo. And sure, like the group chat's got 50 people on it, but only, you know, 15 were really like doing anything. And, and we did it with the support of the other 50. Don't get us wrong. Don't get me wrong. Like people were cheering us on and then like the greater nuclear energy advocacy community. But the the fact that like these disparate groups can just kind of come together to do what's right and leave their egos at the door and just like, just do it not for money, just to do the right thing. It, it, it blew me away. And, you know, roping back to YTT tribe, you know, there, there's this knowledge that Scott Lathrop shares and it. He says, it's never too late to do the right thing. And that was some knowledge that I shared in our group, you know, and that even if we make mistakes, that's okay. You know, you can just, you can just apologize, you know, <laughs> you know, or like we took the wrong strategy. That's okay. We'll just do a better strategy. And there was just so much grace and it's true. Like, and as we were growing the movement and people were joining that were traditionally anti-nuclear, you didn't say, you didn't see people saying, Oh, you know, you're, you're new, like you're excluded from this group or anything. No, it was just, it was all grace. It was like, Oh, we're so glad to have you like, welcome, you know? And like, here's what we're working on. And I, I think that's a lesson beyond nuclear, you know, and these, like in these very polarized times, like we can all just work together. We have, we have so much in common and very little that separates us actually. And, you know, it's never too late to do the right thing. So, you know, that, that indigenous knowledge really like guided the, the, um, the chaotic organizing of our group. And I'm just so thankful the way it worked out. That's amazing. It's yeah. People coming together, shared cause and doing the right thing and letting that guide and organize the way forward. And we, we witnessed the success of that too. So, um, now that you see that like Diablo Canyon is like saved for the moment, um, for the next few years, at least, uh, is, do you, do you see more direction on where this movement can go? Like what, what might be next with maybe legalizing nuclear in California? Well, it's a very hot topic. And I think nuclear advocates around the world are talking about this right now is, you know, we're having these wins, we're having these extensions. Should we be happy and shut up and just like take the win <laughs> or do we like take that inch and seek another mile and i i think we're i think that's an open question right now and i've had discussions about it all week with with my colleagues and I see the full range. I see the bit by bit, like especially in Germany right now, because they only got a three month extension or maybe it's a five month extension as of today. Underwhelming. There it's like, is that enough? And, or should we go bigger? And I will say that our movement in California 
wants to go bigger. There are members in the group who want us to be very careful about our messaging. And I wouldn't say that we're tone policing, but there, there is some of that going on in our, in our movement, you know, like how much do you bash renewables? Um, how, <laughs> how much right. do you ask for from the legislators? And, you know, I think I'm kind of on, I'm further to one side in that I want to seek um, a pathway to first update the nuclear free law in Berkeley because it's a low hanging fruit and I think we can do it. And it's like local level politics because there aren't many like city level bans on nuclear in the United States. Yeah. And right. I know the mayor and like, I think we can get it done and we've already written the legislation and we're not repealing it. We're just updating it. And it was written in 1986 and it was against nuclear mm-hmm. weapons. Right. But it, 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 it barred all nuclear from entering Berkeley and it's creating like research issues at the university. It's crazy. I was going to say like that, that'll get in the way of cancer research, depending on how it's worded. <laughs> and that's what it, it does. And so we're going to reword it that like civilian uses are okay and military uses are not. And so, you know, shout out to Brendan Pittman, you know, one of my associates for really digging into the, um, digging into the language because you really like you got to read these bills you got to like read the language and come up with like alternative language and you have to put that language in the hands of your legislators and they have to freaking vote on it you know and it's and it's it's very nuts and bolts but it's it's real and it's democracy and and i'm very thrilled by it so we're going to do that no matter what now the bigger question is legalizing nuclear in california and that's it's a hot button issue. Um, but when I talk to people who aren't inside the nuclear, uh, advocacy, advocacy space, they're like, Oh yeah, do that. You know, like why I, nuclear is illegal in California. That's crazy. You know? So I think like we get a little bit insular, um, sometimes. And I think that, I think that we should take this five-year extension and number one, demand a 20 year extension for Diablo because five years is a joke. And it, yeah. And yeah. The governor said he wanted to do a 10 year extension, but it's like the NRC does 20 year extensions. So that's what they should ask for. And right. then they should staff up and they should you, properly staff the plant for the next 20 years. Cause five years, you know, it's like <sighs> you get, you get into all these compromises and you don't want to be making compromises when it's the largest power plant in California. And plus, it's going to look silly to all these people involved to extend it for five years. And then we're going to be in the same place in five years saying, eh, well, we still need it. <laughs> Turns out the sun still goes down at night, you know, and these natural gas plants that we proposed are still probably won't be online by then because of all the environmental issues that they're posing. So we're going to ask for 20 years and then ask for another 20 years. So it would be two 20 year extensions just to reach its design lifetime. And then finally, you know, we're meeting with legislators in this off season coming up, um, in November and December, and we're going to be equipping them with ideas to repeal or modify the nuclear moratorium in California. And there are two big sticking points, gentlemen. Number one, to build new nuclear in California, you can do it. It's not illegal. You just can't do it until these two requisites are met. And that is number one, 
a long-term storage facility, BARF, you know, and like even the Department of Energy is like, that's not happening. Um, The Department of Energy is like, we're going to do interim storage for the next 50 years. And it's like, fine, good, put it in my garage. Like, how much more thing? Like, let's get it going. And then the law also states that we need to have a recycling facility in the United States before new nuclear is built. That's illegal. Yeah, it's like that's just like way out, you know, and like that was all designed when this law was written to just say, oh, we're not outlawing nuclear. We're just saying it's never going to happen. And so, you know, we're going to be updating the language to hopefully just abolish both of those. And we saw it in Connecticut, uh, like miraculously, Connecticut just repealed their moratorium. Like in the darkness of night, no one even really cared. And I called into a a Connecticut legislation today uh, with my colleague, Tim Smith, brilliant guy, shout out Tim Smith. Oh my gosh, encyclopedia of nuclear. Um, And, you know, we were like, hey, uh, are you guys actually going to build new nuclear? And they're like, oh, we don't want to talk about that on this call. And they're (laughs) talking about their energy future. And it's like, well, it's legal now, so you could. And they're like, thank you for your input. Please submit on an online questionnaire. Um, And so we're seeing these moratoriums coming down. And it, it, it actually isn't as complicated as we think. And especially with the electric vehicle mandate in California, if we're serious about that, then it's like... One plus one equals two, you know, like we're yeah. not going to do that. And to the credit of the governor's office, when they were testifying in the Senate, California Senate, about Diablo, they said, we will need new nuclear to keep up with California's demand. And I was like, that's all I needed to hear. Right. <laughs> A big keyword right there new nuclear. New nuclear, yep. So, so I think that we need to double down on, we we need to be careful and thoughtful about how we present this new nuclear thing. What we don't want to do is just throw a can of soup at a painting and not have, (laughs) you know, like have a, a plan. And that's why, you know, before we start calling for that really thoughtfully, um, we want to have the legislation ready so we can like hand it to our legislators. So if they say, okay, that sounds like a good idea, which this happens all the time. Like legislators say, yeah, no, I I like that. It's like, okay, here's a sample bill text of exactly what it would need. And they're like, okay, could you help me build coalition? And then we start calling other legislators and we, you know, we make it happen. And so it's that it's combining it's activism and advocacy. So can you uh, can you just do all the like detailed work for me and uh, sell it to me? Then I'll sign it and you know, show that constituents will be supportive. <laughs> exactly. Just, you can just replace that coal furnace with uh, some a nuclear reactor in Wyoming, and you know I'll I'll sign off on it. <laughs> it's it, it is helpful when politicians are like pragmatic like that, where it's like yeah they they know this is this is a better way to do things but there is a lot involved a lot of knowledge a lot of expertise and advocacy and, and coalition building that needs to go into these things um and yeah i think like connecticut has one operating nuclear plant right now uh, uh millstone i believe um and that provides a significant like that's 
one of the two remaining nuclear power plants in New England and providing substantial power at the same time. And there's room on site to <laughs> more nuclear at Millstone. And technically, that is the only thing that is legalized in Connecticut is building new nuclear at Millstone. I, um, I believe it. I know that like over 30 states have some legal framework that basically prevents new nuclear power plants from going up by some means or another, uh, even if it's like, oh, it's legal, but you have to satisfy these other two requirements that are prevented by federal law or like, you know, some other hurdle that is designed to not be jumped. And what we need to jump them is really just public cover, public support. Um, yeah. It's amazing what can happen when like the tides shift. And I think we're seeing some very promising things right now, obviously, but we have to keep going. We have to build the coalition. We're like just over 50% support in the United States, according to polling. And that's, you know, we need, and I, I, I just think it's going to flip very quickly with this energy crunch with, um, you know, concerns of climate with all of these things coming together, like the pro science movement, like, and, and also like this bipartisanship of energy. Like I think pretty much everyone like doesn't want to fight anymore. Like there's some fringe <laughs> people who are like so pissed off about our, you know, our political reality. But I, I have this intuition that like we would love to get some like easy wins and it seems like nuclear could be, one of those. Great. Well, hey, we're kind of reaching the end of our time here. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? I just, I, I got so much gratitude for this podcast, you know, and and the others in the space. You know, I, I can only imagine how much work goes into creating this content and bringing it to the world. But I, I'm pretty sure that it's the podcast that kind of like changed the the inertia of our movement because it allowed us all to start kind of um it allowed some of these ideas to firm up and it also allowed pro-nuclear advocates to feel like they're not alone and because mm -hmm. you kind of feel like you're taking crazy pills with nuclear yeah. you know like it, it's like, like this like miracle panacea technology <laughs> that has this complex history and it's so intimidating um, and, but I just, I know I'm speaking for myself. I know I'm speaking for hundreds of other people out there that this podcast and others is, is giving us like the courage and like, honestly, just like the, what's the opposite of gaslighting? Like, reassurance. Yeah, yeah, reassurance. Just like the reassurance. Genuine reassurance. <laughs> that, like, that, like what we're working on is like real and important and, and I think that's what's empowering this like next generation of advocates and like, and I'm taking all that I learned from this podcast and, and teaching the young people that, that I'm leading, you know, and like, I'm just a 35 year old millennial now, you know, I'm over the hill, but there's all these kids that are just like, what's the solution, you know? And like, I'm like nuclear energy. They're like, okay. <laughs> right. Like, uh, I like, like join our mailing list, you know, and like, but no, we're, we're starting to like really mobilize folks and empower them. And, and, um, so I just, I, I got tons of gratitude for this podcast and like, and like the leadership that you folks are providing. It's, it's real. And, um, 
you know, to everyone else who's listening out there, you know, reassurance that there are, there are some like really cool people coming into this space, like a lot of business leaders, indigenous folks, like all these like very good signs that like something real is happening here. Not just, uh, not just extending some old plants, you know, and calling it a day, but like actually trying to do this nuclear renaissance for real. Right. Well, thanks for your kind words. And where can listeners find you and interact with you? So I am staging a subversive cultural battle on LinkedIn and I need help. I need help. I am, I am just slamming into the wall of public opinion every day on LinkedIn, but I feel like it's a battlefield that, well, it's the battlefield that I want to be on. You know, I'm just, I'm like not witty. I'm like very earnest and literal and that just does not work on Twitter or, or the Mm -hmm. gram or anything. But I have found that LinkedIn is a very literal place and, you know, people's full names and occupations and coworkers are on there. So when people (laughs) post on LinkedIn, most people respect that the people, like it has an effect, you know, it, 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 it has a real effect on your reputation when you post on LinkedIn. Um, I'm not sure everyone realizes that, but like pretty much they do. And so when you get, when you get some interaction on LinkedIn, like, first of all, it gets tons of views. I mean, I got like 400,000 views on, on a post on LinkedIn. And I was like, damn, you know, I only have 5,000 followers. So that's like pretty, pretty dope. And you've got a lot of business leaders who can vote with their wallets and, you know, are like looking for business tips. And we've got to instigate all, all modes of our economy towards nuclear. Right. And Mm -hmm. so I just, if, if y'all could connect with me, Ryan Pickering on LinkedIn, you know, I'm in my job title is energy policy researcher. You'll see, I worked for SunPower for many years. I worked in solar for 12 years and, you know, most of my followers are renewable energy folks. Um, and so, and I'm kind of like counseling them through, including getting over their nuclear fears and incorporating nuclear energy into our clean energy goals. And if just liking my comments, y'all, like I I knock on the door of like big people in power on LinkedIn. I just, I just, I just go for it. And when my comment gets five likes, like amazing things happen. And I get engagement from business leaders saying, well, nuclear's tough. Like that's against the grain, but I do see some real value in firm grid assets like that, you know? And then you've got like a big business leader saying that publicly. I think it's changing things and connect with me there. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll endorse you for whatever. I'll write you a recommendation. Like I will put you up on LinkedIn. Just find me there. Nice. Already added. Well, Ryan, this has been a fantastic podcast episode. It's uh, very interesting to hear this entire journey of yours and all the people involved because this is real history. You know, we saved Diablo. Um, A lot of people said it couldn't be done. And uh, we're living in proof of the times. And I I think it's what you said about it being like a historical flashpoint. Um, I agree because other local movements saving 
their plants or extending their plants or maybe restarting or building new plants um, can look at what you did in Diablo and what everyone involved did there and learn from that. So great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Yep. Appreciate it, man. Thank you, gentlemen. What a terrific conversation with Ryan. It was truly inspirational learning about the incredible people that made Saving Diablo Canyon a reality. This has created an inflection point in the pro-nuclear movement. Absolutely. It shows how hard work, dedication, and making your voice heard can influence meaningful policy. I believe it was Margaret Mead who said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Which is certainly relevant to today's story. If nuclear advocates keep it up, it could show the world how saving, restarting, and even building more nuclear plants should become the new norm. I thought it was great to see all the people who've been anti-nuclear and successful for so long are finally getting their beliefs put under proper scrutiny. If enough pro-science and pro-fact people show up to hearings with correct and calm information, the anti-nuclear arguments begin to unravel on their own. All we really have to do is watch. Sooner or later, politicians will know who is credible which will be the pro-nuclear side. At least I hope. I also like how the story challenges so many assumptions about community sentiment around nuclear energy. The activist rally for Saving Diablo is predominantly pro-nuclear. The governor of California got on board with Saving Diablo. And it's amazing to hear about the local support from indigenous tribes. There is a tragic historical injustice of indigenous people suffering harms from unethical uranium mining practices during the Cold War and weapons race. This has left the cultural assumption that the desires and values of indigenous people would be opposed to nuclear energy. However, Ryan sought out local indigenous leaders ready to listen to their thoughts and learned how they supported Diablo Canyon and even had tribe members working at the plant. They also offered counsel on how to build a coalition, be more effective advocates, and welcomed a place at the table in saving the plant. It's encouraging to hear how tribal leaders recognize and embrace the value of nuclear energy, as it does the most to respect land, air, and water with cleanliness and low footprints compared to other energy sources. I look forward to hearing more about Indigenous communities getting involved with nuclear advocacy and development. Ryan's work in standing up for clean nuclear power has proven invaluable, and we hope the momentum gets much stronger. We again want to thank him for coming on the show. Make sure to find Ryan Pickering on LinkedIn and other social media. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard and want more content, you can support Americans for Nuclear Energy's Climate Fix podcast on a per-episode basis with Patreon. Link in the description. To support Americans for Nuclear Energy and our general mission, visit our website at www.americansfornuclearenergy.org. All words. Again, that's www.americansfornuclearenergy.org. We have a link to donate with PayPal under the Mobilize page. You can also purchase some Americans for Nuclear Energy swag under our store page. This will really help us pay for the little things, especially online service fees, to keep our organization running. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Lastly, we really want your feedback. Let us know your thoughts, questions, and concerns. We have a message form on our website under the About section. Or you can email us directly at main at americansfornuclearenergy.org. All words. Again, that's main at americansfornuclearenergy.org. 
Thanks for tuning into this episode of Americans for Nuclear Energy's Climate Fix podcast. We'll see you next time. Edited and produced by Jonna Adams.